You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. I'm a big believer in, uh, in, in, in this idea of establishing uh, pattern languages and, and using using language as a way, as a, as a, a lever. Welcome to Mex Design Talk. I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of Mex, and some thoughts there on the importance of language from Kwame and Yanning, who's the VP of Experience Design at McKinsey, and my interview guest on the show today. Kwame was talking here, I think, not just about words, but the patterns and the systems that we use to communicate between what's really an increasingly diverse range of people, of practitioners who are needed to make experience design happen across all these different disciplines, across company departments, to make it happen at scale. But before we get into that interview, I thought you might also like an update on Mex Jobs, which I mentioned in the last edition of the podcast. And it's really been going from strength to strength. So Mex Jobs is our curated jobs board. And that word curated is the important one. Mex jobs is all about quality rather than quantity. We're trying to make it a place where companies would share the values of the Mex community. So that belief in the transformative power of user-centered design, uh, the importance of growing and evolving the craft of experience design itself. It's a place where companies like that can share roles with all of the talented people like you who listen to this show, read our journal uh, and come to our MEX events. So you can check it out for yourself. It's at mobileuserexperience.com forward slash jobs. Uh, but there are a couple of roles I particularly wanted to highlight. So Akendi UK, uh, whose president, Dr. Leo Pohl, spoke back at our MEX 12 conference and also led an excellent workshop all about non-visual UI design. Uh, they're looking for a senior UX architect, uh, and the company is based in both London and Cambridge in the UK. Also, Foolproof, which is an experienced design agency really known for its expertise in putting user insight at the heart of digital strategy, uh, they're hiring both an account manager and a principal consultant. And both of those roles could be based either out of their Norwich office or their London office. Uh, now, if you're hiring yourself, um, head over to that site, mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. And there's a link there where you can post your own roles online as well. Right. So back to today's interview. So Kwame and Yanning, VP of Experience Design at McKinsey, which is one of the world's biggest consultancies, and also a company like a lot of the big professional services firms, which has been making serious investments recently in building out its experience design capability. Most recently, uh, they bought Veriday, which is the Swedish design agency, uh, whose partner, Lennart Andersson, some of you might remember, he's spoken and facilitated at several of our, our previous MEX conferences. And Kwame himself has come on an interesting journey uh, with many shared connections with the MEX community along the way. He spent time at Adaptive Path and at Native, uh, both of which uh, have participated at our, our MEX events in the past. Uh, and that 
for me, really is where the conversation gets interesting. As Kwame talks about quite a random set of coincidences, chance meetings, bookshops, which led him from being a bike messenger in New York to a leadership role developing design thinking at what's really one of the world's best-known management consultancies. So we talk about that, uh, how his views on experience design owe much really to architectural practices as much as anything else. Uh, And he also has a challenge for you, the, the podcast listener, about an industry which he thinks is about to be disrupted. Enjoy. Kwame, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join me for the show today. Thank you. Um, very, uh, very honored to, to be invited um, and looking forward to a, a fun conversation. Well, as you know, we tend to talk about things from a couple of perspectives on the podcast, digital and design and where those two things overlap. Now, I'm wondering for you, did you set out particularly to focus on one or other of those initially in your career? Or did you always see them as being part of one and the same thing? Uh, you know, it's I, I, I didn't come from a traditional design background. Uh, it's, it's one of those things, when I look back in my life, uh, that it seems sort of obvious that it, it was part of shaping my, my perspective design as a, as a, as a practice and shaping my perspective or my worldview. Uh, but I, I never really, uh, you know, sort of considered myself, uh, to be, uh, you know, a designer or participating in any sort of design activities until I got involved with the internet, uh, and sort of developing for the web, uh, way back in, uh, in the late nineties. And, it was at that point when it became very evident and very obvious that when designing for uh, uh, or making something for a, uh, a digital platform, that it was going to be the design that was the, that was the, differenti- the differentiator. And, and that, that differentiation uh, would need to, to be very considered and, and very structured and very applicable to the brand. And, the experience that, that, that you wanted to, to, to create. And, and, and I, and I think that from, from, from that point on, the, the two have been very synonymous. So was there a moment at which you felt you were a web designer, a web developer? Can you remember the point at which you felt like, you know, that, that was your emerging role? Uh, yeah, well, it's, 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 it's really, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if it's ever like one point. It's it's a it's probably you know like a like multiple points. But I was I I spent a, I was living in New York and I had always wanted to be a a, a bicycle messenger. And uh, this was my chance to, to to be a bicycle messenger in New York City. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna be a bicycle messenger for a summer. And uh, I didn't really you know. I didn't, I was kind of, I was young, didn't have a whole lot of direction in my life and was just enjoying riding around Manhattan, uh, doing probably the, the most dangerous thing that, that anybody can do. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, you survived, which I think is, yeah. is like goal number one for bike messengers. Right. And, 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 uh, and one day I, I dropped off a package and it was at a, a modeling agency. And, and the guy that owned the modeling agency uh, printed a news, uh, newsletter. And I picked up the newsletter while I was waiting for somebody to come and sign for the package. And the newsletter was about all kinds of different things in like the modeling industry or whatever. But there was a little snippet about uh, kind of like his message to his employees. And the thing that he said uh, to his employees within this newsletter was that the one thing that had allowed him to be successful in his life, to always never have to worry about, uh, you know, sort of making ends meet or meeting his responsibilities was that he was an expert at one thing. And so as a, as a kind of young, unfocused uh, person in, in New York City, this is really good advice. So, so I said, okay, well, you know, what am I going to be an expert at? So I, I, I went to Barnes and Noble and uh, looked around, you know, like, okay, what, you know, like what's, what's kind of catching my eye. And so this was the late nineties. And so there was these, these big, huge books about web development and coding for Java and uh, CSC and, and C plus plus and, and all this stuff. And so I just found myself gravitating uh, to to this new emerging web world, and uh, would go back to Barnes and Noble and just sort of browse through the books every day after work, until I found this one book called Design for Business. It's by this guy Clement Monk, and I read through it uh, in one sitting. Um, and you know because it was, it was I think it was like sixty dollars, and there's no way I'm going to afford a sixty dollar book on a bike messenger um, uh, salary. So I just sat down and read it, and it blew my mind because it, it made the connection between uh, process. I'm a very sort of process, just naturally sort of process oriented, methodology, language, and uh, and a, and, a, and the application of craft uh, through through design. And so, you know, I read the book. It blew my mind. It was cool. I went back to being a bike messenger. When the when the, the fall came, I I stopped. Uh, I taught myself HTML. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, I went for a job interview. They didn't want me, but maybe they want you. You should go, you should go to this place. It's called Studio Archetype. So I went to Studio Archetype and interviewed, got a job as a production artist. Uh, and uh, it turns out that Studio Archetype was owned and founded by Clement Muck. And so it was just sort of this big full circle thing, you know, where uh, I realized that I had taken a step out of one world and into another and that that step was was a uh, you know looking back was pretty transformational and um, I'm very ha- very very thankful to that guy that owned that modeling agency for for his advice because he, he shaped the course of my life. You know, it's funny how often you hear these stories of a, a random set of coincidences and chances which then led people down a path which takes them on to become preeminent in their field which i always find is is fascinating and yeah also the the sense which i think perhaps people who have come into this area of experience design if that's the the kind of broad term we now use to describe it uh, at a more recent stage um don't really grasp is just how much of an evolving world it was back in Mm -hmm. the late 90s early 2000s that a lot of the definitions that we take for granted now a lot of the the kind of buzz terms which have become accepted uh, as defining the field simply weren't in existence and that people were coming at this from all 
kind of different points of collision, you know, some more from a business background, some more from a design background, an arts background, a technical computer science background. And you had this real um, melting pot, if you like, of all of those different skills going on. I mean, what was the, the background of studio archetype as a, a firm? How, how were they positioning themselves at that time? Yeah, so so Clement had been at Apple. That was that was kind of his claim to fame uh, around the time when they had come out with uh, the I think it was the Lisa um, uh, personal computer, and 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 he had he had played a, a big role in helping to design their collateral. So all of the uh, all the all the print material and 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 helping to develop the visual language. Uh, and the uh, sort of the, the guidelines around how Apple would present itself to the world. Uh, so he was very much about brand and uh, the strategy, uh, the very real strategy um, around brand. And he then went on to, he founded a, a, a stock imagery company where the stock images were uh, were outlined in such a way that it was very easy to kind of using and, and using Photoshop or um, I'm not sure Illustrator was around at that point, but using 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 other sort of you know uh, very rudimentary photo uh, digital photo uh, uh, tools, you could take it and put it put it in so you pick up an apple and put an apple in, in in your in your collateral in your your pamphlet or your newsletter that you want you're wanting to send out, and uh, he put them on. CD-ROMs, and this was kind of revolutionary at the point, and he sold that company and uh, made him very well off. And then he went on to uh, start another company, which was focused on WYSIWYG uh, web development, and that was also sold. And so he had he had established himself as a you know as a serial entrepreneur and a design-led serial entrepreneur, and uh, Started Studio Archetype in New York and San Francisco with a bunch of ex Siegel and Gale people, and so Siegel and Gale at that point were doing work around like redesigning American Express's uh, uh, bill or invoice that they would send out to to their customers. So like hardcore information design, and and he had made the connection between brand and information design or information architecture. And the power that that would have within the context of the web for businesses. So I'm not really aware of, of anybody before Clement um, and, you know, a bunch of the other folks that, that were sort of, they were senior there, uh, Tom Andrews, Donald Chestnut, uh, Judith Hugenboom, a, a, a lot of folks who uh, have kind of gone on to, to do really interesting things in, in their lives uh, had made that connection between brand technology and then business you know that 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 these that by putting things online and by structuring your messaging and your offering and the value that you bring in such you know in a way that that amplifies and activates the brand uh was a uh was a, a very sort of unique and differentiating aspect of of the web absolutely uh, i mean it feels like still we're in a situation where there are perhaps the majority of organizations which remain of the view or at least of the level of experimentation where design is a skin deep thing 
uh, and to be doing it that early on to have that realization that actually you need to go several levels deeper than that if you're going to use those kind of techniques to start making change happen at scale within a business Mm -hmm. seems Mm -hmm. very forward thinking i mean you made that point there about the importance of uh, language uh, in how you describe those things and how you then use it to perhaps start to have a more systematic approach to the way a language for a business develops, be that the way it defines its brand or the way it interfaces with its its customers. Uh, I mean, is that something that you find today is still relevant to the, the work that you're doing, that those principles have stayed with you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and as, as you mentioned, you know, in the early days uh, of the late 90s, everybody was coming at this from a different perspective, and there was no real shared vocabulary. You had some folks um, from the human-computer interaction background, and so it was all about, you know, sort of, it was like they were maybe leading the shaping of, of everybody's mental model of, of the ways in which uh, you should structure uh interaction models and things like that. Uh, but then you also had folks from, you know, the library sciences and you had people that were coming in there from more media backgrounds. And then there was a lot of print people, uh, who had been designing for print. So you had things like above the fold and below the fold, which, you know, don't really make sense, uh, in a digital media, but, uh, you know, help to, to, to frame how you would begin to, to think about designing for, for a screen. And over time, we've seen many of these terms kind of go away and, and, and fall off uh, and converge uh, into, in, into other sort of you know, new frames and, and, and shapes, of, shapes of meaning. And there's, there's a guy that I, I like a lot, uh, another one of those sort of seminal moments in, in my life when uh, there was like this light switch that came on in my brain. Uh, an architect named Christopher Alexander. And I was uh, spending a lot of time in Menlo Park in, uh, in the Bay Area, which is you know, right above Palo Alto, where, where, where Stanford is. And uh, working, I was working at a, a, at a cafe, and uh, there was a bookstore right next to it called Kepler's. And it's a fantastic bookstore uh, in, in, uh, in this little kind of uh, plaza. And I would go in there on my lunch break and pull out books and just start looking at them kind of randomly. And, and one day I walked into the, the uh, architecture section, pulled out this book called The Timeless Way of Building, and was just completely hit over the head uh, with how, for me, how profound it was. Because what, what Christopher Alexander was talking about in A Timeless Way of Building was this idea that, they're, uh, that the built environment is shaped by the language that we use. And the more uh, coherent and holistic that language is based on a shared set of values and uh, experiential expectations, the richer and better uh, your environment will be. So for, for him, you know, he, he grew up in, in England, uh, which is, you know, you don't, you don't think about the, the English countryside about as, as being something that is designed. But this morning, as I, I I just flew back in from Johannesburg and flying over it, you realize how uh, considered, uh, you know, sort of the the, the 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 layout of the English the English countryside is, 
uh, you know, with all the hedges and the demarcations uh, of, of property lines and the gates that sort of sit between the hedges and the, 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 the village center um, relative to sort of the, the more medium-sized cities and all that kind of, you know, the way it's planned and laid out and structured is a very considered and intentional thing. And you, when, you're, when you're in those environments, it feels different than being in an environment that is not as considered and that is obviously sort of didn't rise up from a, from a shared language, like Menlo Park, <laughs> California, um, where things are not proportionally uh, arranged. And there, there isn't you know, a consideration of the transition from one part of uh, the town to the next part of the town. And what Christopher Alexander was and is wanting to do is introduce these pattern languages, introduce these patterns into uh, regular everyday uh, sort of vernacular around making things. And, uh, you know, and it's, and this is this way of thinking his, his work has had a tremendous effect and impact on, uh, technology, uh, you know, coding and, and computer science, uh, as well as a, a number of other things, this idea of sort of patterns and, uh, a generative grammar that can be used to make things. So that, that's really interesting the way you describe and use that metaphor of, of the countryside and, and having that overview as you come in on a flight and being able to understand at that sort of level why the system feels different in a way that perhaps you don't when you're down in the detail of it. You know, you can experience that difference, but you perhaps can't understand where it's coming from. And I'm wondering, you know, in your work today, when you're helping companies at scale with these experience design projects, what's the equivalent in uh, the world of, of digital and you know, developing these large-scale business systems, which gives you the ability to zoom out to that higher level and actually start to see why some of the structures are the way they are so that you can then start to understand how you can affect change on, on the ground level. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's probably three, three or four levels of, of kind of view. One is from an industry-wide perspective. So being one of the benefits of, of being at a place like McKinsey is that you have access to a, to a degree of uh, business expertise and knowledge that I've never had available to me ever before in my career. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, there's views that I've, I now have access into our, into, into the client organization and industry that uh, are, are pretty new to me. So having been here for a little while now, I, one of the things that I, I typically tend to ask for at the start of any engagement is to understand what's the value at stake within uh, a client's organization or within the, the industry overall. So if, if you think of, a, uh, of, a, of, a, of, of an industry segment, I don't know, uh, talk about banking because it's, it's kind of easy to understand. So there's retail banking, there's commercial banking, there's corporate banking. And then each one of those uh, larger blocks can be broken down into the various uh, segments. And, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, retail banking for uh, mass consumers, uh, there's wealth products, and you can break down the products within, within those buckets. And it kind of goes down, 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 and then, and then associate 
uh, value to each one of those to each one of those those buckets. So, and can, when you say value, yeah. are we talking here uh, in dollar terms? Yes. So, uh, and and from from this at at this at this level, we're we're looking purely at sort of yeah the, the monetary value. Uh, but you could also you know you could you could look you could a- apply a, a different metric to it. Um, depending on the level of your or the sort of the the, the slant or the, the the thrust of your of your inquiry into how you're going to define the value at stake, it, it could be from an environmental standpoint, and the value at stake could be carbon emission, right? Uh, so, but it's a it's a it's an interesting mechanism to use to get an overview of an, of of a business and of an industry. From that point, once you have an understanding of where the value at stake is, so Let's say that, that we've identified that there's room to play um, for a specific financial player in mass affluent, uh, unsecured lending. You then can 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 begin to understand through research, both um, ethnographic research or interviews or surveys, uh, as well as conversations with stakeholders. What's the What's the sort of general kind of be, the set of behaviors, needs, expectations, business priority uh, around uh, that particular uh, product category and uh, an initiative and begin to understand the ecosystem that supports it. And, and that's where we get to the, the, the next kind of level, which is a, a service blueprint, where we have a, a clear understanding of all the different touch points that the mass affluent uh, uh, segment would uh, interact with as they um, think about or uh, apply for or receive an unsecured uh, personal loan. So we have, you know, the the full ecosystem view, all the touch points, all the different actors that are involved at each touch point, all the supporting systems that are involved in providing um, and activating uh, the overall service. And from there, we're able to then map at the sort of the, the third level a, a customer journey. Uh, and, you know, by applying all the insights that we've, we've gathered along the way, we're not only able to map a customer's journey at a, at a very low level, we're also able to begin to apply a sense of their emotional state or their, you know, the, the pain points that they, that they sort of encounter as they go through that journey. And begin to 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 make a uh, informed kind of uh, bet around where we think the value is within that journey by alleviating some of those pain points, or you know, uh, doubling down on on some opportunities that, that we've um, identified as gaps or um, things that are not being serviced in the appropriate way. So, uh, for you as the the practitioner, mm. what do you find? the most challenging part of ensuring that there remains a connection between those three different views, if you like, those three different levels to which you can abstract things and, and zoom out. Because you know, obviously uh, th- there's a need for that that kind of structure. Uh, but then I always wonder about the, the danger um, that once you rely on one versus the other of those particular layers, there is that risk that you know, some of uh, how it then manifests on the ground 
for the end user can be lost along the way as you try to apply what can be very necessary systems to allow these things to scale to very large businesses. But for you, you know, how do you ensure that at the end of that process, you still end up with something that when it's used uh, by the individual on the ground, they end up having a good experience and that something hasn't been been lost in the scaling of it? Right. Well, I I think that's where we we go back to the to the pattern language bit as well. And ensuring that uh that you know in the same way that christopher alexander talks about the overall master plan of of a town all the way down to you know the height the optimal height of a of a doorknob or of a a step uh it's all it has to be holistic and and connected so when we talk about uh value at stake and opportunity areas and, and, and hero moments and pain points. And, uh, you know, uh, within the journey, there's an onboarding journey. And then that, that onboarding journey is broken out into its constituent parts. Uh, all of these things are, are connected. And I'm not saying that it's, it's, you know, it's as easy as just call, you know, sort of a, applying a, applying terms to things as a way to ensure that you get to an optimal de- design or, or experience for for the for your end customer, you know, who's a who's a person that has their own needs and expectations. Um, and oftentimes, business priority will get in the way, or technical feasibility will, you know, sort of not be able to give you everything that you want, but by embedding the the idea from the beginning of uh we're making this for a human being this human being has needs and wants and has you know emotional relationships to their experiences that are independent of any product that you put in front of them uh and we begin at that level um once we understand you know where the value for the business is to focus it, it helps, you know, and, 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 I, and, and it's, and, and it's, it's the language that we use. It's the way that we work by engaging, uh, our clients in the process. So it's not something that happens in the abstract for them. It's not something that we come back to them, you know, a month later and say, here, here's your solution. We involve them in the customer research. We involve them in the definition of, uh, the service blueprint. And the, uh, the the framing of the customer journey and the identification of the pain points and where those hero moments are and the opportunity areas are, so that along the way we're getting their input from the standpoint. Again, if we go back to the sort of unsecured uh, personal uh, personal loan again, you know the, the the bank's risk people, the people that that are that are responsible for underwriting. Uh, you know, this, this product to ensure that they actually get paid back for it, um, need to be okay with the, with the customer journey that, that, that we're, that we're reshaping and, and crafting and the marketing people need to be okay with it. And, you know, the, the, the folks that are, uh, responsible for meeting, uh, the appropriate, uh, you know, sort of customer acquisition numbers need to be okay but we have them in the room with us and we're building this all together. And I think that's in many ways, um, uh, is what distinguishes again, like the, 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 
the way that McKenzie would, would do something versus the way that I've done things in design firms where, so when I was a native, you know, we would just completely, we'd have a meeting with the client. We'd understand their requirements. We'd understand what they wanted to do. And then we'd go back to the studio, close the door, draw, pull up the drawbridge and, you know, do whatever it took to get to that next review point outside of the, the view of the client and then kind of come back out and ta-da, here's this, this beautifully crafted, extremely considered and well-made thing that we've made for you. And oftentimes it was that, you know, uh, and the client would be very happy and, and uh, these products will go out to the market and, and, and do very well. But other times, you know, because we were sort of cloistered and secluded, um, I think some of our solutions that we we would put, we would come out with um, because they didn't have the client in, input because they weren't informed by the practicalities of the business, uh, you know, didn't go as far as, as 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 they might have if they had been. Well, I think that's potentially a, an, a challenge overall that this industry is, is facing at the moment um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously, customer expectations are evolving all the time as people become more familiar with what's possible and what's available to them from uh, disruptive young startups and how that changes their expectations of how they deal with companies that they've always done business with, but also at a technical level as well. Some of the emerging technologies that we see are making it much more viable now than even two or three years ago for customers to have an expectation that the services that they use will be inherently multi-touchpoint, that they will be able to interact with them in some way and often in ways where you get that multiplier effect of several digital devices working harmoniously with each other to deliver services which just weren't possible even a few short years ago. And on the back end of that, you know, for the practitioners who are tasked with being responsible for this, I think you, you're you absolutely right. It means that there is that requirement for many more stakeholders to be not just aware, but actively involved in that creation process. And I guess when we talk about language in that context, you know, that there's the risk that this is just seen as getting bogged down in semantics and that people will just find a way to, to make that language work. But I think you're right. I think it goes rather deeper than that. And that actually when you've got that real diverse range of stakeholders and participants trying to make something and they're all coming from slightly different backgrounds, the language that they use to communicate those things is going to have an outsize effect on the, the, the overall outcome. Uh, and I mean, going back to your example of the, the countryside, there's a book by a guy called Robert McFarlane where he's gone around and looked at all of the different terms from all different parts of uh, the country, which people have for describing things that they see in nature. Uh, in that kind of environment that you were talking about having the, the overview of as you, you flew into the, the UK. And, uh, you know, I, I think it goes back to that point that, um, people, you know, when they, they live in particular areas and are influenced by certain geographies or they work in particular crafts, they start to develop a vocabulary which allows them to be very specific and achieve some quite advanced things within their particular, uh, specialist domain. And unless you're able to find a language system which allows the benefits of all of those to flow into the overall creation process, 
then you're going to struggle to get the best out of all of those those different groups. Definitely, definitely, and and you know, and we're we're seeing this uh, both at at a very low level. So you look at things like you know material design or atomic design. These these pattern libraries that designers and developers are able to 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 share and to use, and that are you know depending on you know you, I guess your 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 aesthetic sensibilities whether or not they're actually like great patterns or or not is is, is in a way beside the point, but it, it's 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 more about the fact that there is a movement towards establishing a shared language and a shared understanding at at a practitioner level, and uh, at a, you know, and then you 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 look at within you know the the development or engineering uh, practice, they they have a number of libraries that that they use, and if you look at at the at the the service designers and the um, user experience designers, there's a shared, uh, you know, um, grammar that, that that is used to describe what, what what they do, and it bubbles all the way up um, to the point where we now have clients who, uh, even though they they come from a from a, a business background or a, a technology background, uh, are able to engage with us as long as we give them the appropriate. The appropriate context and uh, language is, is 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 interesting because it's in, in many ways it's almost like a like a virus you know like you you, you can you can insert uh, pretty fundamental um, and revolutionary change into a system by changing what something is called and uh, and that 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 idea of creating that space where you can take people out of their these business people, our clients, out of their normal context and put them into a new context. And you can call it a studio or a garage or a lab or whatever, and create new patterns, new rhythms, new processes. In our case, a lot of the times it's about um, agile uh, as a way of, of thinking and a way of working. Uh, and, and employing design thinking. Um, these are, you know, kind of labels and terms, but 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 these labels and terms have uh, an underlying structure that allows us to define meaning, uh, and that meaning is what then allows us to work together to achieve a, a, a common and shared goal. So, I'm a big believer in uh, in, in in this idea of establishing. Uh, pattern languages and and using using language as a way as a as a, a lever of uh, creating and promoting uh, a holistic perspective because at the end of the day that's what typically good looks like good looks like a whole good looks like something that uh, is very well it's so well considered at its beginning that its end is uh, oftentimes indistinguishable. From its beginning, and uh, and and you're and you're you know and you're just kind of in it, and there's that that, that sort of that, the, that those flow moments, and that's that's kind of how I've lived my life, <laughs> looking looking for those flow moments. Yeah, absolutely. That can be a, a powerful feeling when it, it hits you. Just going back to to what you were saying about um, client motivations. I mean, you've had the opportunity to see this now over. Yeah, an extended number of years from various different perspectives working for 
smaller design firms like Native, uh, Adaptive Path, I know you also spent time with as well, and now with a very large organization like McKinsey. And do you find that you respond with particular nuance depending on where those client motivations are coming from? Because, yeah, as you alluded to, they can often be somewhat different in their initial creation, the initial conception. Sometimes it's a client which comes to an agency because they feel that they need to get ahead from a technology perspective. Sometimes it can be because they feel that they need to get better at design. uh, And that often influences the way in which they're thinking about it internally, even if ultimately the user-centered solution to the particular set of challenges that they have may end up um, being driven more by those user requirements. Is there a nuance to how you deal with that within the organization, how you work with the client to help them understand that, yes, although this has come initially, say, from their technology budget and the technology team, actually it's something which requires more of a design approach or or vice versa? Yeah, have you had to develop a set of subtleties which allows you to, to guide people towards taking that, that more holistic view? Yeah, you know, uh, for the most part, our clients come to us if you're if even even in, when I was at Native or at Adaptive Path, these are you know uh, premium services uh, in their you know at their respective levels. So the clients that that are that are coming in are typically in trouble. <laughs> they're they're losing market share. There's you know or they they have some technology that they don't know necessarily what to do with. Um, that they've invested in and, and need to develop it, or there's a market that they've identified that you know they're, they're not 100% clear on on how to how to approach and and how to position themselves within it. Uh, so for the most part, they come in uh, understanding that they don't know all the answers, and they're and and they're looking to to us to help them. To help them identify and define the path forward, so which is why I think you see things like workshops um, being such a, a, a prevalent kind of first step with with these clients, uh, because what what those workshops do is is they allow you to remove again like sort of like what I was talking about earlier. They allow you to take the client out of their normal context, put them in a new context, and begin to introduce new ideas, new terms, and new perspectives. And in doing that, uh, and then also taking them along with you on the journey, you can get in front of a lot of the institutional or organizational inertia that got them to the place where they needed to come to you to begin with. Uh, And it's all about having conversations uh and having the those conversations be about not necessarily uh the the normal considerations of a business which are you know viability feasibility uh and you know kind of cost but about desirability and experience and delight uh and uh convenience and efficiency and 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 things things that that, that don't normally play a role in, in the day-to-day aspects of, of business. So again, it's 
shifting the, 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 the thrust of the conversation, the focus of the conversation away from what they would normally want to talk about to things that begin to open up possibility and opportunity for new and more novel ways of thinking about their products and their service. I guess it's quite a responsibility to take on, to play that role for the client. As you say, this is a premium service expectation that when a client enters into that sort of engagement, you know, that they're expecting that you be at the cutting edge of these things. And I mean, do you have particular sources of inspiration, you know, particularly on the, the technology side, uh, as to the kind of things which are emerging that you think might have a significant role to play around those areas of delivering on the promise of convenience and, and of delight. I mean, there's a, a, a you know, never-ending stream of these technologies emerging all the time. But how do you filter for yourself which you feel are going to be the ones that actually have the potential to, to have a large-scale impact? Mm. Yeah, well, again, I think if I, you know, two years ago, uh, the answer to that question would be blogs <laughs> and, and maybe, maybe meetups and conversations that, that I have with, with developers or, or, you know, things that happen very much inside the, the design community. Now that I've been at McKinsey, uh, it's a completely different perspective that I, I can, that I have around what are the forces that are shaping the future? Uh, because, Yes, I'm definitely focused on experience design and you know trying to keep up with what's going on uh, with the newest, latest, and also you know technology uh, that activates and empowers these experiences is, is a very important component. And I need to, to stay up on that as well. But there's a business aspect that uh, I hadn't really been very much exposed to that I now am that is very much shaping uh, my perspective. So. You know, McKinsey is is known for, is famous for uh, the knowledge kind of component of its of its offering of getting new ideas out out there into the world. And uh, on a day to day basis, I'm interacting with different experts in different um, arenas uh, that you know are probably some of the most knowledgeable people uh, about. Uh, Again, these forces that are that are that are shaping our experiences. One of the one of the one of those experts that I, I ran into recently uh, talked to me about open banking and PSD two and what what these uh, governmental regulations, open banking and PSD two, are. One, open banking is is sponsored by the UK uh, competitive uh, authority. That's saying, all right, banks, you guys have to open up all of your data uh, to an API that allows pretty much anyone who registers with us to have access to that data, uh, which is a pretty big deal. And PSD2 is an EU-wide uh, set of regulations that deal with, with payments and being able to activate a payment uh using an, an open API directly into a bank without necessarily having to go through the bank systems to execute that, to execute those, those payments. So the, these are things that, uh, are, are still kind of in development and still, uh, you know, 
coming into focus but are very much in the public domain and are being shaped by industry and by fintechs uh, and that are going to, to, to impact our, our, our lives. You know, when, when, you, when you think about, uh, I don't know, an Amazon having act, direct access, once you give them permission to, to go and look at your bank account information, what that means when they begin to merge all of their behavioral data that they have against you and your, uh, your, uh, your buying patterns that they have and, you know, say, hey, why don't we offer you a, uh, a loan? Uh, or here's a novel way to finance that refrigerator you're, you're, you're looking at, or here's some behavioral trends around the, around your, your spending patterns. And we, you know, maybe we want to recommend, uh, this product versus that product. Uh, and you know, here's that one click button and you're going to click it and it doesn't have to go through any credit card or anything like that. It goes directly, uh, from one account from your account to Amazon's account. So the, the speed and like the 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 the, the frictionlessness of these interactions uh, are going to bubble up slowly, but once they are fully established, I, I think they're they're going to be pretty important to how we experience commerce and how we experience uh, the world around us in many ways, at least in, in the UK and, and in Europe. Yeah, it's potentially a quite a disruptive moment, I think, and you know whether that disruption comes from a piece of new technology that emerges or whether it comes from a new regulation that's introduced. I always find it fascinating when it ends up putting the influence back on those who can respond fastest to mm. users' desires. You know, once you have an event which potentially levels the playing field in some way, you often find that the companies which emerge successful from that disruptive period are not so much those who have a legacy in a particular area, although obviously that, that can help and, you know, can give you the ability to maintain a position. But often it, it's the ones who actually uh, are able to um, step away from that legacy and question it really deeply and ask themselves, well, what of this is still relevant to our users today? Not yeah, what product lines do we have currently which are successful, but what are we going to be able to offer which is going to delight people in the future? And it sounds like the banking industry may well be about to face that sort of moment itself. They are, they, because they have to ask themselves, do we just want to become a dumb pipe for money? Uh, and some of them are choosing, yeah, you know, we do. <laughs> and others are saying, no, we don't. And... Uh, so, you know, and, and we've seen this type of disruption happen with uh, media, you know, like Netflix and uh, what they're doing uh, to, to the entertainment industry or Napster and iTunes and, and what happened with uh, music, uh, you know, and, and if you look, you know, I don't know, now from where they began, what, we're, what, you're, what you're also able to see is that Netflix and iTunes are are much more about lifestyle and culture, really, than they are about the the products anymore. Uh, you know, Netflix is about me and my wife sitting down uh, together on a couch and just pulling up a movie and and, and sharing that moment, as opposed to the, the the technical underpinnings and like, wow, isn't it cool that you can get 
you know, a, a video streaming through your, through your laptop that, that we take that for granted now. And it's all about sort of the experiential, um, uh, benefits that we have from, from, from experiencing that Netflix's product and, and their service. And right now the focus is on technology for, for finance and for banking. And, and the, and the focus is on, you know, transactional volumes and, you know, open platforms and third-party integration and all the APIs that, that, and what everyone needs to remember and, and what everyone needs to to keep at at, at the, the forefront of their minds if they're approaching open banking or PSD two or any of these new emerging and disruptive technologies, VR, all of it, is that at some point you're going to get over that technological hump, the the sort of the tension that technology and and ambition uh can can create and you're going to get into this moment which is much more sustainable and much more scalable and and uh and integrated uh around lifestyle and around the fact that it's about emotions and uh you know sort of how i feel about your service not necessarily like you were saying you know well this product is better than that product uh so that's where I like to, that's, that's where, from a design standpoint, that's where, that's where we're starting from. And I think that that is what our clients are seeing is that, is that, is that we're kind of helping them to leap over a number of, uh, uh, very real and, you know, very, very meaningful barriers, uh, to them getting to something that, uh, is differentiated and that people will love and view as essential um, to their lives is by is by by first focusing on the human aspect and the needs um, that people really have and the problems that they're trying to solve in their lives, as opposed to the technological or business-led considerations, which will be worked out uh, regardless over time. I almost wonder whether there's an analogy here with experience design as an industry itself and the kind of process of maturity that it's gone through, which, I mean, you, you've lived and breathed in your career. And if you go back to like the time when you were with Adaptive Path, for instance, yeah, that was very much a, an emerging pioneer that was creating a lot of these definitions, creating these kind of methods, which now are being practiced at scale by big providers like the McKinsey's, the Accenture's, the PwC's of this world, who have gone through a period of uh, acquiring providers of those kind of services, of, of buying in that expertise to the point where you can imagine a time in the foreseeable future where that sort of approach, yeah, that sort of user-centered approach, the ability to build large-scale design systems becomes a, an expectation among the providers of, of business services. And it's no longer the differentiator, perhaps, that it once was in the sense that at the moment we're in a period where if you are one of the companies that is buying into doing that, you are still in the minority. But once we get to a point where actually it is the majority that are doing that, does that change the game for how those who provide these kind of services into companies need to think about the way they do it? Um, to keep their skills sharp or perhaps to look potentially to new emerging niche areas where they can be the ones that offer something new and different that goes beyond a client's 
own internal capabilities to, to, to take that kind of user-centered approach to the world? I think it's, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be a bit of both because there's always those folks that are a little bit out there ahead of the pack and uh, possess a level of, of insight and uh, able to create their own tools to go and tackle um, problems that other folks don't even know exist yet or you know, um, execute on opportunities that, that, that the people other folks haven't, haven't realized. Um, so we'll see the continued evolution of the practice of design, mainly because the things that we will be designing is also going to evolve, right? We're not going to be like right now we're, 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 we're designing for uh, a relatively, uh, known, um, domain. And, but that domain is constantly spreading and changing and evolving and, and what comes, you know, as those things bubble up and emerge, they'll need to be designed. So, and that, and that, and that, that spreading and evolving happens faster than business can move. But I'll, I, I will say that the, one of the things that I'm saying is that while McKinsey is still hiring the best and the brightest from Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, MIT, the folks that are coming out uh, are passing through uh, a system in which design is very much a part of how they do things. Design thinking is very much a, a, a way of, of being and a way of working. So it isn't like this weird out thing that is outside of them. It's, it's very much an integral part of how they view business. So if I'm an, if I'm an MBA uh, at Rothman up in, up in, in, in Canada, uh, you know, my, my education is, is its foundation is based on, uh, empathy and, uh, insight and, uh, primary, you know, contextual, um, knowledge gathering and inquiry. And that's, you know, that, that's a, that's a whole different animal, uh, than what, you know, has, has been coming out of these, 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 uh, these elite, uh, institutions that places like McKenzie and, and other folks, uh, hire from. So the, the, the expectations that we need to begin to have for our counterparts and stakeholders within our client organizations, uh, are also needing to elevate because folks are, are coming in a lot more knowledgeable and a lot more educated and capable of, of meeting us at, at, at this point of customer centricity or human centricity. Uh, so there's going to be a lot that folks like McKenzie can no longer take for granted that we are the experts in a specific given way of, of, of making or doing or shaping or framing and, uh, and, you know, a greater sense of partnership. Um, so I think it's going to be a bit of both, you know, like we, the, the, the domain is going to expand and we're going to need to, to design for 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 the, the the new elements and aspects of that domain, um, and we also need to elevate our our service offering uh, and our expectations and assumptions around our client organizations because they're coming in a lot more educated, a lot more capable, uh, and uh, informed. Well, I think it's a challenge that you share with many in the MEX community who'll be listening to this who all in, in various ways, either on the client side or, or the agency side, I think are having to get their heads around that that evolution. The fact that um, 
increasingly there's a, a need for people with experienced design skills to serve as, as educators and co-collaborators with their, their client organizations as much about leaving behind a legacy of skills and ability for clients to do things for themselves as it is about delivering a, a set of, of tangible deliverables. Or, or on the other side of that, those who are finding that there are particular niche specialisms where they're able to develop a set of craft skills which are particularly valuable, often in relation, say, to a specific emerging technology. You know, we see some of this at the moment around what's going on in, for instance, augmented reality, virtual reality, or things like haptics, where, you know, those sort of um, very particular craft skills about a, a specific element of digital design have a, a value which um, can then be plugged into the, these larger scale projects. But you, I guess, know a little bit about our mixed community and the the people within it that we have. Um, I guess people from all sides of that that equation. You know, from the uh, the experienced design strategy side, from the emerging technology side of things. Um, is there a, a particular challenge you think that they should be thinking about, or a particular question you'd like to? pose to the community to, to get some feedback on. You know, Mex's history is all about conversation and discussion and, and the sharing of ideas. So um, if there's anything you've got on your mind that you want to share or, or get some thoughts back on, by all means. Yeah, I mean, you know, from a very selfish perspective, because of, of my focus uh, within my, my day-to-day, I'm very interested in hearing from designers after they do maybe a bit of research and, and uh and, and thinking about user-centric and uh, human-led solutions to some of these opportunities that open banking is going to uh, present. Because what, what right now what I'm seeing when I, when I go to a lot of these um, working group sessions and share-outs from the open banking implementation entities uh, are a lot of, <laughs> a lot of suits Right. There's, there's a lot of folks that uh, have a vested interest in, in, in maintaining the status quo for uh, as much time as possible. And I'd like to, to maybe shake things up a bit because I, I, I think that um, the more that design and designers uh, impact these emerging standards and ways of thinking, uh, the richer and uh, more interesting the solutions will be that, that come out of it. So if anybody has any thoughts around open banking or uh, PSD2, um, and if you haven't done any research on it, or if you haven't, if it's something that's kind of new to you, I definitely suggest that you go and, and take a look at it, um, particularly if you're a designer here in London or uh, in Europe, because uh, you know the, 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 the sooner you're up to speed on it, the, the, the sooner you'll be able to support your clients or your your, your colleagues in developing um, new and interesting ways to think about money, commerce, community, culture uh, in our society. So, yeah. Well, we will leave uh, some links in the show notes to some of the background on open banking and PSD2 um, so that listeners can go and check those out uh, and also leave a link to Kwame's details so that you can drop him a note with some of your thoughts on that. But sounds like a good challenge for everyone to be getting their heads around and no doubt one we'll come back to in future episodes of the podcast uh, or at the, the next conference later in the year as well. 
But Kwame, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come and have a chat on the show today. Very much enjoyed discussing this with you and we'll look forward to staying in touch in the future. Definitely. Thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate the time uh, and the opportunity to, uh, to have an interesting conversation. It's always, always a lot of fun. That's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. If you want to follow up on anything you heard about in the show, then there are links to everything we talked about in the show notes, which we post at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. You can also tweet us at mechsfeed on Twitter, uh, or the email address is designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Now, one last thing, if you enjoyed Mech's Design Talk, then have a think about who else among your contacts might also like to have a listen, and please send them a link so that we can continue building the listenership for the podcast. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.